Turn with me over to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. And today we're going to talk about what it means to manage victory and salvation well. Manage victory and salvation well. We're going to look at, a, at an unusual character in that context. Now, he's not unusual in Scripture. He's the foundation of our faith. He's the one that showed us what it's like to do things that don't make any sense, but God said. Naturally, they don't fit together like pieces of a puzzle, but spiritually it looks beautiful when God puts it together. We're going to look at Abraham. Genesis 14, verses 17 through 24. Genesis 14, verses 17 through 24. Then after his defeat, excuse me, his return, <laughs> then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of the Most High God. And the Lord blessed him and said, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be the God of Abraham Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And he gave him a tenth of everything. Verse 21. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, so that you do not say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing, verse 24, except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Lord, help us as we study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things in this passage about which I wish to speak. One, conquering of a great opponent. Two, a conference of allies. And three, what it means to contribute as opposed to claim. Background. Abram is the father of our faith. He's the guy upon whom all of redemptive history with respect to who the nation of Israel would be and the Messiah through whom Israel would come, he is the guy that was the foundation for it. He came from what we believe was an idolatrous background because that's all there was for the most part. Out of the Tower of Babel was chaos. Languages that did not exist before came into being. Cultures that did not exist before came into being. For the first time, you may have had conflict between people groups. There was always, after Adam, conflict between people. I mean, like next generation, Cain and Abel. But now, conflicts between people groups began to emerge. God begins to speak in this chaos to Abram to bring some degree of order and redemptive purpose to the planet. And he says, I want you, in Genesis 12, to move from the people that are yours, your family, and go to the land that I will show you. Out of the blue, he chooses one guy. We don't know what made Abram so distinguished amongst all the other people on the planet for God to choose, except that there is one passage over in Genesis 18 that says that he would teach and train his children to do righteousness and justice after him. I don't know that that was a discipleship tool that God used specifically after he was called. It may have been something that was hardwired in him before he was called though he had no children. But he had a heart to make sure that whoever would come from his loins was trained well. 
There's something about parents that capture the heart of God and would attract him as a magnet to his promises and purposes so that they might understand that whatever they're doing naturally needs to be accentuated spiritually so that their children can do so much more than they ever had been equipped to do naturally. I hope you heard what I said there. We don't know why, but that's the only thing that we, we can see that kind of maybe built an on-ramp in Abram's life whereby God would say, you're the man. Whatever it was, he said, I want you to go. And Abram said, yes. And I'm going to amplify Abram a little bit so you understand how important he was to our progress, who we are. If you read Romans 4 and 5, you'll understand. But this guy was really unusual. He says, he says to God, yes. Now, God always wants you, yes, even if you don't understand everything that he asks you to do. He wants your yes. He's not trying to, 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 to tell you all the fine print. And boy, is there fine print. There is a lot of it. And it's not that it's illegible. It's just that <laughs> if you read it, you'd probably say no. If you understood everything that God was going to do with you, you might be a little reluctant to say yes. Only a few can understand the fullness of what it means to sacrifice all and, and still say, okay. Jesus tried to make it plain. He said, if you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me. You talk about offensive. We think of crosses as kind of affectionate little pieces of jewelry. Back then, they were instruments of execution. Today, it would be like, pick up your electric chair and follow. You ever seen an electric chair dangling from somebody's ear? from their neck. If, what are you doing? That's just horrible. But we've made them really pretty. We've lost the impact of the cross because we've made it beautiful. I'm not saying that everybody who wears something of jewelry is doing something wrong. No, I'm glad about it. I don't have any issue with it. I just want us to understand in context that which Jesus was saying that was so offensive to the people to whom he was speaking in that day. These were Jews that had seen their relatives put on that cross. And he's saying, you want to follow me? You want me to, to follow you? You're saying you want to follow me? You, I got to pick up an instrument of Roman execution to follow a Hebrew rabbi? Are you kidding me? We hate the Romans and my uncle, which is crucified last week. No, you can't be serious. And the disciples balked at it. My point is... If, if you really understand everything, sometimes you may not say yes. Even though Jesus makes it plain. And maybe fine print is not the correct metaphor to use. We just don't understand what all means. But Abram said yes without even asking a whole lot of questions about where am I going? Who are the people to whom I'm going? What is this supposed to look like? Is there a job waiting for me? What do I tell Sarai? Now, Sarai was his wife. <laughs> Can you imagine that conversation? We don't have it in Scripture. Um, dear, we're moving. Oh, why? Well, I heard from God. He told us to leave. Okay. Which God? That would have been a natural question for people who, who were idolaters. Which God? Well, the God of the universe. Oh, there's one of those? 
You mean there's a God over all gods? Well, I don't know about the other gods, but I know this one is God. He told you to go. Yes, 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 yes. Where? I don't know. Hmm. You mean the God who knows all, is all, will, will do all, was doing stuff before all, and knows the end from the beginning all, that one can't tell you where to go? He, might, he may be able to, but he didn't. So it's just time to go. I got an idea. Why don't you go first? When you find it, send for me. I mean, we don't have those conversations in Scripture, but ladies, you know that happened. How am I going to follow a man who doesn't know where he's going? This is nuts. I got a nice house here. Everything's great. We're doing good. You want us to go to some place that somebody else owns and doesn't want to give it up? And Abram, through all of that static, and even maybe his own questioning, said yes to God and moved from a place called Ur of the Chaldees down to what we now know as Israel. And did not know where he was going, but God told him that when he got there, by the way, this is it. But on the way, he had no clue. He just went south. And the Lord said, move from your family and do it. And the land where I tell you you're going to be, that land I will give to you and to your descendants. This became the place in which God began to confirm his covenant. His prophets, his kings, his Messiah would be born here. This land. Thus Abraham becomes the man upon whom we can rest all of our, 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 our understanding of faith when God says do things that don't have all the information therein. We just say, if God is speaking, we do. Now, it doesn't mean that we hear right all the time, so it's important to get confirmation on a regular basis whenever you think you've heard from God. Please, because there's a lot on the line. And we don't think there was any question about how Abram heard. It was really clear, but we have a whole lot of things running through our brains sometimes. And so this is why God gives us pastors and other people who can help us know how to hear from God best. Because sometimes we're hearing from ourselves. Sometimes we're hearing from other people. Sometimes we're hearing from the enemy. And it's important for us to hone in on how to hear the voice of God before we make big decisions with our lives. Are you listening to me? But this is how we begin to hear because Abram heard. We understand what it means to walk by faith because he didn't have all the information, yet he walked by faith. And as he went into the promised land, he, he left his family, but he had, he, had to, he had to carry a bit of his family. Now, his brother, Haran, had passed away. Abram had moved from Ur of the Chaldees, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of Iraq, we think, what would be Iraq today, around the Persian Gulf. He moved from there, coming west, and settled in Haran with his dad, Terah. And he had brothers. And we think he had sisters. They may not, they're just not mentioned. One of his brothers, Haran, died while he was in a city called Haran. And his brother had a son named Lot. Now, in Hebrew culture, or the culture that the Hebrews inherited because Abraham was the first Hebrew, if you were the eldest sibling and one of your brothers had a son, and that brother dies, that son now becomes your charge. And the way we know eldest generally in Scripture is that whoever is mentioned first in the sibling order, that is the eldest. Abram is always mentioned first. Therefore, Abram had a responsibility now to care for Haran's son. 
Haran's son was Lot. You following me? Lot was a problem. And as, as God said, leave your family, he did, meaning Abram left his family, but he also had a cultural thing that he couldn't give up. He couldn't leave Lot because that was now his charge culturally and familially. So he had to bring Lot with him. But Lot wasn't necessarily called. He was just along for the ride. Lot was not a young kid. Lot was older. Lot had flocks. Lot had herds. Lot had a family, we believe. While he was coming with Abraham, we know when later on we see his family, but we believe he had a family and he had servants and he had a lot of stuff that he inherited from his dad. But he was Abram's responsibility. So now you've got Abram and Sarah and then Lot and whoever's with him, all the herds and flocks coming south. And please, as you look at scripture, sometimes you can relegate the traveling band to just a few people that are trying to figure out where do they find the next days in. That's not it. It says that Abram actually had 318 men trained in his house. That's a little bit larger than a small business. These were herdsmen, shepherds, cooks, tailors. And those men, we believe, had wives. So you're talking 636 people. And those wives and husbands had kids. You're probably looking at two to 3,000 folks that are nomads now traveling through a piece of property, which makes them somewhat intimidating to everybody else who thinks, this is my land. Your, your sheep are eating the, the, the grass that my sheep need to eat. Your cattle are devouring the, 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 the stuff on the ground that the, my... I need to water my cattle at this watering hole. And so Abram is concerned that he is being intimidating to the other people groups. And all he's trying to do is make friends. He's not trying to make war. He's not trying to produce conflict. But there's hard, it's a hard thing when you got two, 3,000 people with you to not seem like you are invading. Well, one day, because of the competition for resources, Lot's herdsmen begin to quarrel with Abram's herdsmen and shepherds. And say, the land that we have here obviously isn't working because my sheep and my herds need, need sustenance and yours do. And I want mine to get the best. Something like that went on. But we do know that it was probably Lot was the one that was the one quarreling. It got so bad that Abram had to get involved. I'm going someplace with this. Abram looked at Lot and said, listen, there's not going to be a fight between you and me. We're not going to quarrel. You choose the best piece of property. I'll go the other direction. Wow. God said, I'm going to give this place to you, Abram. And yet Abram was not territorial. Even though God gives you stuff, it's still his. Are you listening to me? You don't have any rights to it. And if you begin to claim them, he'll take it back. Territorialism makes you really small, makes Brett really small. Abram was big. He said, Lot, choose, and I'll go the other way. He knew this, that God had given him whatever he had given him. And even if he tried to give it away, he couldn't because God gave it to him. And if he gave it away, God was going to give it back. It was his, and so he had no fear of loss. He looks toward the greenest, Lot does, the greenest pasture 
in all of the promised land. And that happened to be in a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, that infamous place that God decided singularly in all of Scripture to destroy all by himself. Fire and brimstone came down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And I realize all the things that are culturally popular to talk about with respect to this city. But if you look in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 48, none of the things that we think Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for, though they were part of it, weren't the primary. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of their inhospitality, their lack of, of giving, and, and, and their selfishness. That's what it says in Ezekiel 48. They were a messed up people. And everybody in the promised land knew it. But Lot said, I want to go there. That's where we wind up in this story in Genesis 14. There were four kings to the north, and there were five kings in the south. Sodom and Gomorrah were part of the kingdoms in the south. They were paying tribute to the kings in the north. In the 12th year of paying tribute, they decided not to. In the 13th year, the kings to the north that were four came down invaded the south with the five kings and took them all captive. Lot with them. Abram's looking at this. Man, I, I thought I had relieved myself of a problem. He went that way, I went this way, all good. But he's my responsibility. I got to. I got to go to war. He takes his 318 men along with his allies that he had met in a prior chapter, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. We don't know who these guys were, but we do know that they were at least aligned with Abram, and they had some human resources to devote to the battle. And he goes after these four kings. Now, if you, do you remember, at least when I grew up, I'm, I'm a boomer. Sorry, I'm a boomer. And so we boomers, somewhere around the third or fourth grade, learned something about civilization in an area called Mesopotamia. Does anybody remember what I'm talking about? This is Mesopotamia, that which I'm speaking, okay? In Mesopotamia, in about 2,500, 2,500 B.C., the, 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 the size of armies were between three and 6,000 men. They weren't 50 and 60 and 100,000. Three and 6,000 men for the most part. If you joined up with forces and you had four, four kingdoms, you had between 12 and 20,000 people. Abram had 318. We don't know what Aner, Meskel, Eskel, and Mamre had, but let, let's just say they like Pookie, Ray, Ray, and Skittle. <laughs> not much, not much to bring to the table. So much so that we see when Melchizedek, this guy I'm going to explain in a minute, comes out and says, what welcomes Abram back from the battle? He says this, the Lord handed this kingdom, these kingdoms over to you. You won, but God gave you the victory. <laughs> he goes to battle, Abram does with his allies. And he rescues everybody and all the stuff. Now, what is, this, what is the phrase we use in battle with respect to victors? To the victors belongs the spoils. When you win, you get whatever the other guy had. Whatever they had is now yours. And so you are enriched with their resources. Abraham had everything. He had the stuff the people had, and he had the people. It was all his because he laid down his life to save them. 
and indeed, he saved them. He conquered an army that was much more powerful than him that he should not have been able to conquer because he was willing to sacrifice himself for somebody that most would think is not worth sacrificing for. Does that sound like anybody you know? What about us attracted us to God? Surely not our good looks. Sorry, Pastor Eddie. Surely not our disposition. Surely not our, our lack of selfishness. Our wonderful thought life. Our kindness. All those things are lacking in our life. We were arguably not worth saving. At least not to the degree of what it cost. The son of God's life. Oh. But Abram said, I'm going to go and ride. <laughs> what a man. And he brought him back. And he realizes, I couldn't have secured this without God. He knows it to be true. But it's confirmed when they have a, a, a great conference in the Valley of Shiva. It's Abram, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom. We don't hear anything from Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, but the king of Sodom... Abram and Melchizedek, we hear something about. Now, Melchizedek is this figure that just shows up. Y'all still with me? This is the teaching lesson today that helps you understand your Bible better. Melchizedek is this guy that just shows up. He shows up here, he hadn't showed up before, and he never shows up again. He is king and priest of a town called Salem, which we believe mm, some thousand years later would be the capital, or 2,000 years later, would be the capital of, Jerusalem, uh, of the city of, uh, <laughs> of the nation of Israel, and David would establish it there. That's what we think. But he came out and he greeted Abram. And he said, blessed be Abram of most high God. Like, wow, look at what you did. You not only went to rescue your nephew, but you saved a group of people that everybody thought needed to be taken captive. There was nothing about Sodom and Gomorrah that made anybody think that somebody needed to sacrifice their own life to bring them back. And we'll see why in just a minute. Do you know, generally speaking, people get the leader they deserve? Generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, when the moral climate of a people descends to such a degree that they have leaders that they don't like, it's usually their fault. Mm. Uh, you won't ask me back after that comment. <laughs> Church hadn't been very active in evangelism. Church hasn't been very active in social service, providing for people. The church has not been what the church ought to be for the last 50, 60, 70 years. Hasn't. And our society has gone down. And when you have a democracy, when you have a democracy, you are dependent upon the majority to be righteous in order for the country to be so. And we've depended on a lot of other things to change other than people's hearts. And because we've depended on other things in the hearts of people to change, things have changed, but people haven't. And so our, our country is messed up. I'm not even talking politically. I'm just talking messed up with wrong-thinking people, including church folk like me. We all need to repent and get right with God so our nation can be saved. 
And I'm not talking about economic salvation. I'm not talking about political salvation. I'm talking about spirit, spiritual salvation. Saved. We need a revival. Can everybody say amen to that? Amen. God have mercy. Melchizedek comes out. He represents kingly authority and priestly authority. In Hebrews, he's likened to a, a pre-shadowing of Christ because Jesus was a king and a priest. This guy just shows up, has no genealogy, it says in Hebrews, no father and mother, we don't know where he came from, and then just disappears. But he brings out bread and wine. <sighs> you know, God hasn't had it, a really new idea ever. Not with respect to salvation. He cloaks the idea of salvation and redemption in different clothes, but it's the same thought. It is one scarlet thread from the book of Genesis all the way through Revelation. He's saying the same thing in different ways so people can understand it, but it's the same thing. I want humanity right, and it's going to cost to do so. Bread and wine, body and blood. We call it communion today. We're 6,000 years or 4,000 years away from this moment, and we're still doing the same thing. God's word is consistent from beginning to end. Gives him bread and wine after a great victory. And says, the Lord God has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek knew you shouldn't have won this battle. And when we have victories that we should not have won. Anybody amening? Victories you should not have won. Jobs you should not have, grades you should not have gotten. Spouses that are upstream from you. Hello? I have one. I had to swim way upstream to get mine. Health. The bus that did not hit you yesterday. The disease that did not afflict you. Do you know how much you have to be grateful for? In, in, in acquiring victory you should not have except for the grace of God. And I could go on for the next hour to talk about all the things that you may have forgotten about what God has done for you. And they are generic because he's done the same thing for me, but then there are the specifics that you just have to sit down and meditate on. And, and, and David, David says, and I think it's Psalm 40 someplace in there, he says, if I were to count all the deeds you've done, I'd run out of time. God has been so good to you, and we are so undeserving. What do we do when we've acquired victory? This should not be ours. Abram did something that nobody had ever done before. It says he gave a tenth to Melchizedek. Gave a tenth of everything he had to Melchizedek because he represented the presence of God on the earth. Tithing is one of those things that people fight over because they say it's a part of the Old Testament. It's a part of the law, and we know that we don't have to do the law in the New Testament today. So tithing is really not a requirement. Who's talking about requirement? You, you, you reduce it to that, you're in trouble. What about gratefulness? What does God have to do to make you this grateful? What else does he have to do to make you grateful enough like Abram to give a tenth? How does he have to prove himself? The reality is he lets us keep 90. That's a good deal. 
considering it's all his now, if you think it's yours, that's a whole nother story. You think you're sacrificing something to give to him as a contribution and somehow he needs to pat you on the back. The tithe is his, it says in Malachi. And even if we didn't know that doctrinally, what about the lack of gratefulness in your soul, my soul? What about that? We have to deal with that. And why is it that we do not feel the necessary gratefulness to be able to contribute to him at least a tenth? Because of all he's done for us. Abram did it out of, out of, the, out of gratefulness, the goodness of his heart. Nobody told him. Now, in the New Testament, if you want some evidence of tithing, it doesn't talk about it a lot, but it does talk about sacrifice. Remember, we've got in the New Testament about 65 years of history. Some say 90, but I say it's 65 to 70. The Old Testament has about 4,000 years of history, a genealogical history. So you've got a lot more exhortations. But what we have in terms of sacrifice in the new is a concentration in those 70 years of history. You talk about, wow, it's not just give 10%, it's your entire life is God's. Therefore, that means everything you got is his. We are called to be joyful givers. Joyful. What do you do with victory that you could not have secured on your own? You contribute. You don't just say thank you with your mouth. You don't just express gratefulness in your heart. You do it tangibly. My wife and I, we've been tithing since forever. And we, that's the minimum. That's the minimum. There are orphans we care for. There are missionaries we support. Tithing is the minimum to say thank you. I think you got the point. I'll move on. And then Melchizedek does what he does, and I'm about to close. And then Sodom shows up. Sean, it's okay, now it's my turn to talk. Abram, let's have a conversation. You give me the people, and uh, you can have all the other stuff. Let's just make a deal here with that, okay? Now, help me. What bargaining power does the rescued have? What should have been the first two words out of Sodom's mouth? This is why everybody was shocked when Abram went to rescue Sodom, not just Lot, but Sodom. After he had beaten these kings, he could have sat down with Cheddar Lamar and said, listen, you can have Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) I don't care. Just give me Lot. That king would have been happy considering he just got defeated. But he brought everybody back. He rescued people that nobody thought needed to be rescued because they had no idea about what gratefulness sounded like. Here's here's an analogy. Skier down the slopes in Colorado. Guy's out there filming and skiing. He's going 60 miles an hour slaloming down and all of a sudden the sound of the helicopter causes an avalanche. You ever seen this on National Geographic? And the skier's trying to outrace the avalanche, but the skier can only go about 60. The avalanche can go about 200. He ain't going to win. 
It's not going to happen. And all of a sudden, you see this horrific sight where the avalanche, the, the, the rolling snow and ice and, and stone covers him. And the avalanche keeps going, but the guy's 20 feet under. They send out a team, dogs. They have uh, infrared heat uh, cameras. They can see heat. Uh, and, and, and they dig, and they, they find him. They see a, a ski pole sticking up out of the ground after about 10 meters. And they keep going, they keep going, they keep and they get him. And, and, and before he comes out, he says, listen, before you tell, I'd like, I'd like to have the exclusive on CNN. I need the rights. I think the rescuers would say, let's leave him down there just a little, just a little bit longer. What bargaining power does the rescued have? None. The only thing that needs to come out of Sodom's mouth is, Abram, thank you for sparing my life. I don't care what you take. Thank you. And as I close, I beg you, in whatever circumstance you find yourself, stop bargaining with God. Worship. I don't care how difficult it is. Worship. By the way, to bargain... Don't you have to have something of value that the other party wants? Isn't that the way bargaining works? Like, how can you bargain with somebody who has everything? What about what you have is going to incentivize him to make a deal with you if he owns it all? So bargaining is not going to help. God, if you give me a passing grade on this test, I'm going to go to GCC Sterling. And, and, and I, I, I tell you what else I'll do. I, midweek, I'll go to a small group meeting. And I'm going to read my Bible every day for a week. Those are things you're supposed to do anyway. Well, why do you use them as bargaining chips? God's sitting there saying, so? <laughs> I'm glad about that. I'm glad you're supposed to do that. That doesn't incentivize me to help you. The only thing that has ever incentivized me to help you is I love you. It's not what you can offer me. It's I love you. And I've already given everything for you. Why isn't that reciprocated? Why don't you just offer to me as I've offered for you? How do we manage victory and salvation? We make sure that we understand what God has done for us and contribute a portion proportionately. Thank you for the victory you've given me in my employment. Thank you for the victory you've given me in my family. I can't tell you how grateful I am for my wife and my children. My bride is just like present company accepted, the best woman since Eve. She's phenomenal. She homeschooled our children for 23 years. We had a retirement party for her. My kids are fine, upstanding citizens. They are doing well. Four of them are in the ministry and work in the church. They love Jesus. And the biggest hurdle they had to get over was me, not her. Me. I was always the, the holdback. I regularly give a thank offering to my God for my wife and my children because I realize what he's done in spite of me, not because of me. What is God going to have to do more 
to incentivize you to thank him for victory. Lastly, how do you respond to the fact that he saved you from all death, hell, yourself? When life is really bad, I mean really bad, when you, when you feel like every day the greatest act of courage you can employ is getting out of bed, when life is that bad, remind yourself of this. Jesus died for me so I don't have to go to hell. Life will get better. Life gets better because you begin to, to, to realize that it's not about just now. It's about much longer what God has done for you. An extended period called forever where he has given you an, a taste of his love here so you can experience the fullness of it there. Let perspective fill your soul about what he has done rather than what the enemy is doing now or the cleanup you got to do for all the mistakes you made here. He is bigger than whatever you're going through. And don't let whatever you're doing be that which defines your reality. Are you listening to me? This is how we respond to salvation. We don't just look at life in a, in a, in a, in a box, compartmentalize it. Lord, thank you. Even in the midst of my difficulty and my life is a wreck. Jesus, I thank you for the ability to worship you and the fact that you gave your son for my life. I'm going to concentrate on the big, not the small. The big, not the small. That's how we respond to re being rescued in salvation. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. You're a good God. Thank you for your graciousness and how you've postured yourself to us. Help us to be like Abraham and different than Sodom. Different. If there's anybody this morning who has not given their heart to Christ or maybe you've made a decision in the past but your life doesn't look anything like what a believer's ought to be and you realize you need to make a change today. If you fit in either of those categories, raise your hand high. I'd like to pray for you. Today is a great day to get right with God. Anybody at all, raise your hand high. I see that hand. I see those hands. Once it's up, you can put it down. Anybody else? You who are online, here's an opportunity for you to reconnect with the, with the God of the universe. Will you pray with me? You who raised your hands, pray. Say, Father in heaven, forgive me. I am sorry for the way I have lived. I choose to turn away from everything I know to be sin and to follow you with all of my heart. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving me the privilege of calling Jesus the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Eddie will tell you what you need to do if you prayed that prayer. Church, love you much, proud of you.